This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. Supporting loved ones in treatment can feel like navigating a minefield. Do I or don't I get involved in treatment? Where do the boundaries sit? Where do I even get started? These questions can feel overwhelming and often lead to us doing nothing. In today's episode, you'll hear us talk about how clinicians can extend their treatment with clients to include their clients' loved ones and how to navigate this with their clients. We also talked about how important it is for people supporting a loved one in treatment to access knowledge, to engage in self-care, to communicate and to hold space for their grief. Let's get started. Let's do it. Supporting loved ones in treatment. Oh, yes. Such an important topic. Understandably, we're not islands. We live with other people mostly or are at least surrounded by others to some degree, no matter our age. And, we, you know, over the episodes we've spent, I think, quite a lot of time talking about supporting young people in treatment. So today would be a good idea to extend on that but also talk about how to support adult loved ones in treatment as well, partners, adult children parents, etc. Yeah, that's important as well. There are so many ways we can approach this, I think. Like we probably cover things like how much do you get involved with treatment? Where do you even start? Do you attend sessions with your loved one? Where do you find information? I work predominantly with children, teens, youth, but I also work with parents and some adults although it's not the bulk of what I do. But the first thing I think of when thinking about supporting adult clients in treatment is that inherently when you're working with younger people, you're thinking systemically. So you're thinking about bringing the parents in. You're thinking about whether dyad or family therapy is required. The young people are brought by their parents. They are integrated into the assessment. You're getting that collateral information. You are talking about family accommodations, you are educating the broader system, you're talking to the school, you're really thinking about all of the places where the young person lives and exists and functions and spends their time and you're working in all the different aspects of their world to combat OCD. But I don't know that that's necessarily true with adult clients, that we automatically bring in a loved one to get collateral information or to educate, or whether clients even want their loved ones to be brought in, or whether, you know, if you're working with an adult client, whether you consider bringing, talking to their parents, you know, if their parents are much older and they're an individual person. So I guess if I'm just thinking about this from a clinician's perspective, but also the perspective of a client and also then their loved one, what a complicated picture, as you're saying, to know if my loved one is in treatment, where do I fit in? Am I included or not included? Can I approach the psychologist or psychiatrist or not? Should I be attending? Will they want me there? I've got information to give, but do they want it? Am I overstepping? What are the boundaries? How do I respect my partner's privacy? Like, you know, I wonder if we could start from that space thinking about just the dilemma. What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think from a clinician's perspective too, it's this idea of how do I maintain my client's confidentiality? How do we navigate these waters? Yeah. If loved ones do reach out, sometimes unbeknownst to the client, and sometimes it is motivated by the client, but you haven't had that discussion with your client. You just get this email going, oh, hey, I'm blah, blah's partner or a phone call or whatever. And you're like, ah. As a clinician, how do you approach it with your adult clients? How do you set it up? How do you think with your clients about who else is in their life? How do you hold their loved ones in mind during your assessment and treatment? It really just depends on their circumstances. If they're living alone, which is rare, but if they're living alone, I'll often ask, is there anyone that you want involved in your treatment? Is there any, like, what kind of supports do you have? Because you want to know about their support system in any case to know if there are risk factors or whatnot. You want to be able to make sure that there are those supports so that that person can draw on them to help get them through really rough patches. But oftentimes, if they're adult children living with their parents, I'll often ask, how does OCD get your parents involved at home? Just to kind of start looking at, are there any accommodations happening? How independent is this adult who's living at home? How independent are they? Because we often talk about this idea of chronological age and developmental age. Like you might be, say, 28 chronologically, but developmentally, you might actually be 18, meaning you need a little bit of extra support or you're a little bit more reliant on parents to help. And that means OCD drags parents in for reassurance seeking and other accommodations. So it's really just you do need to make it a part of your assessment process to kind of gauge where they're at and whether or not family needs to be involved right from the outset and kind of work as you would if it was a younger person or if there is that independence and it isn't that much accommodation happening. Same as if the person was in a relationship and asking those questions around, does OCD drag your partner into it? Like how does it impact your relationship and so on and so forth. So I think that kind of gives you a gauge followed by, well, do we involve your partner, parent, sibling, etc., in this? If so, how do we do that? Usually we provide a lot of psychoeducation. We provide a lot of tools and strategies for partners and parents, etc., to use. But sometimes our clients don't want them involved at all. And that can make it really tricky. With your adult clients, how often do you think they want to include their partner or their parents or even their children if their parents, you know, if they've got older children versus um, how much do they want to just do it their own way, do it on their own privacy? Most people prefer to do it on their own. I will say that. Yeah. What do you think that's about? Why do you reckon people want to do it on their own? I think sometimes people prefer to kind of cocoon themselves a little bit and not get stuck in the noise of being policed by others, just kind of knowing that, okay, I need to kind of get this right in my own headspace. I need to be able to learn and know what I'm doing for my own self before I can even have think about getting someone else involved. Sometimes it's about family dynamics. It might not be the best, like it might not be a very supportive relationship. They might not be getting their needs met in the way that they want to be getting their needs met or need to have their needs met, if that makes sense. So the quality of the relationship, I think, makes a huge difference as well. Sometimes it goes the other way. Sometimes loved ones and partners don't want to get involved. The client wants to have them involved, but the loved one is sick of OCD. 
because they've been fighting against it for so long. And so they're like, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with this anymore, which is actually really quite heartbreaking. And then other times it can be this idea of including them a bit more heavily at the start and then doing check-ins along the way and then mostly just working with your client, which is not that dissimilar to how you would when you're working with a young person. I was going to say the same thing, actually. That's pretty similar format, yeah. There are so many variables involved when it comes to supporting a loved one in treatment or even having them involved. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the big things that I've learned as a psychologist over the years is the concept of holding the system in mind what makes up this person's world, who's in it, and where are the strengths and the resources to tap into, where are the aspects of their system that we can strengthen to be an asset, and where are the perpetuating factors or the triggering factors, and where might be something that we have to target or work on. And even when you're in the room, you know, holding that broader system and those relationships in mind, always sort of wondering with your client, well, how do we see it from another person's perspective? What would they say if they were here? Who can you talk to about this, et cetera? It can be quite challenging because if it's really entrenched and like, for example, if you've got a pet, like if you're working with an adult client who has a partner and children and OCD has rules, you know, there's like another family member and that family member is called OCD. And so OCD is like, well, you can't go to school using this pathway or you can't drive that way or you can't wear this or you can't touch that or when you come home you have to strip your clothes off at the door, get straight into the shower, you know. Sometimes there are these really intense rules and you're like, well, we're not really going to get anywhere with treatment if everyone's accommodating OCDs. If the client is resistant at the start, sometimes I'll still open up that discussion a little bit and be like, you know, we're only going to get so far if we keep going on our own. Do you feel ready to include family? And sometimes we just wait and buy our time until the client feels ready to include family. Sometimes that needs to happen too. Sometimes it will never happen, but sometimes it's just working through the fear of what will happen if I include family. And I do that for teenagers too. I mean, with children, it's pretty standard to have parents in the room, but with teenagers, they um, do have more agency and autonomy. And I do have teenagers who do not want their parents included. And so I do the same thing, holding them in mind and talking about what the fear is and then continuing to come back with the idea. And then what I also talk to parents about, I mean, this is a little bit different to what you do with an adult client. I do know that, but I would say to the parents, even though because of privacy and confidentiality, your young person does not want you involved at this point in time, know that I am holding you in mind and my goal is to integrate you into this work, but they have asked for this to be private right now, but know that we're always thinking of you and we're thinking about you and your relationship and hopefully one day we'll get there where it can be more integrated. Yeah, so people don't feel excluded because it would be really hard to be a parent or a loved one feeling really worried. And being in the dark. Starting with perhaps that kind of scenario where you've got an adult client who has said, no, I don't want to include my loved ones in treatment. How do we still support their loved ones through treatment? The internet is such a wonderful resource and there's so much stuff out there, like listening to podcasts or, <laughs> you know, what? there are so many wonderful YouTube videos out there. 
The International OCD Foundation website is a really wonderful place to start for a lot of people. So if you Google International OCD Foundation or IOCDF, they're based in America. There is so many wonderful resources on that website, which will be a nice starting point. Yes, you do have to be careful of what you read on the internet. Not everything is accurate, obviously, as we saw in the bloody, was it the New York Post? was the New York oh, the Post. article, I that swear. terrible, terrible, heinous it article. It was atrocious. You're all going to want to oh. know what we're talking about now. The New York Post released this article that Tori came across. Do you want to share the... Uh, I don't want to. It's so gross. Well, look, the article, just disclaimer, I don't read the New York Post. I saw a reference <laughs> to it. <laughs> and so I went looking. <laughs> don't judge me. <laughs> Maybe we're judging you, maybe we're not. <laughs> I'm going to have to sit mm-hmm. with that uncertainty. <laughs> yeah, but the article um, was basically drawing a link between people with OCD and extremist behaviours and acts of terrorism and saying that people become obsessed with their thoughts and thoughts of hurting others. And what was so terrible about this opinion piece was that they actually um, referenced uh, research which actually said the actual opposite so they actually hadn't really even read their own source when you linked to the reference that they'd used it was very much talking about how the intrusive thoughts and obsessions that people have are ego dystonic meaning that they don't want them they're frightened by their thoughts they're disgusted by the fact that the thoughts enter their mind and even though this is what their source article said they still misquoted it and it's just pretty vile that there's articles like that out there just perpetuating people's misunderstanding of what OCD is and people with lived experience of OCD, their shame and fear of talking about it and accessing help is terrible. Mm-hmm. So you're right, don't believe everything you read, so be really careful. I love the IOCDF yeah. and podcasts. And so OCD is an Australian-based one that has lots of really fantastic information on there. What else do you like? Because I've obviously got lots of child and adolescent type ones that I refer to. Natasha Daniels. Yeah, her YouTube channel is amazing. OCD Kids Movie. The So OCD website is so, S-O-O-C-D.com.au. Oh, yeah, cheers. Yeah, is the website for that one. By Penny and Rosie. Yeah. Two people with uh, lived experience of OCD. That's a good one to listen to. Uh, I mean, to read. Yeah, Natasha Daniels, Mm -hmm. which is... Her YouTube channel is wonderful. Yeah. Just look up her name. There's another website called intrusivethoughts.org. I think it's actually called Made of Millions now. Yes, Made of Millions. Yeah. Yeah, that's also got really great videos on there as well. It's an informative website. And then there are heaps of like books. We've interviewed Jonathan Grayson. We've interviewed Jonathan Abramowitz. I think his episodes would have come out by the time this episode gets released. Mm-hmm. And several other people along the way. Ali Leibowitz, yeah, Paul Salkowskis' articles. So there's lots of really good books to read and lots are out with a family focus. And I wish that I had thought about this before coming on. I will think about it and link to it. You may know. But there is a book about when you've got a family member with OCD and there is a section for when your loved one is a child and a section for when your loved one is an adult. And I am going to figure out what that book is. Oh, that's awesome. By the end of this episode or I will make sure we've got it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. We'll pop it in the show notes. But yeah, lots of lots of things to read. There are loads of resources out there. Yeah. There's a really great book by Joan Davidson, I want to say. 
are fudge sticks. I can, I'm so visual. I can picture the cover. <laughs> Me too. But I can't tell you the name. I'm just Googling right now. <laughs> Our recall abilities are so terrible, you and I. I know. <laughs> Fail that on the waist. Daring to challenge OCD, overcome your fear of treatment by Joan Davidson. The reason why that book is a really good one is because she's also been on the OCD Stories podcast is it talks about mindset and mindset challenges to OCD. And as a loved one, it's a really good one to read because a lot of our clients often are like, my family just don't get it. They think it's just a quirk. You know, they're like, I have intrusive thoughts too. They're really not that bad. Or can't you just stop what you're doing? And it's like, well, yeah, as if we haven't tried that before. So that one's a really good one to really understand what it's like with to to have to live with OCD and what kind of mindset challenges your loved ones are going to be facing. So you know that when they're working on their exposures at home and all the rest of it, you know what to expect and how to support them in that way. I reckon, I might be wrong, I might be misquoting, but I reckon the book I'm thinking of is Jonathan Abramowitz's book. Ah, oh, yes. The Family Guide to Getting Over OCD. Oh, yeah, that's I will a do great more research, one. but it's an outstanding book anyway, but I reckon that is the one that I'm referencing, so I'm going to go back and double check and then we'll make sure we link properly, but yeah. Yeah, pop it in the show notes. So if you are supporting someone who is in treatment, whether you are included in the sessions or not, one of the best things either as a clinician to recommend to your client. So you can say to your client, look, okay, you don't want your family member in treatment, but I would recommend passing on these resources. The more they know, the better they can support you. Or if you can have contact with them, send them the resources. Or if, if you're completely excluded, which sometimes that happens, go do the work yourself. Go do it go and read because the more you know, the less risk of burnout you'll have, the more you'll know what you're doing and how to support. Yeah, I just think it's really, really important to do, yeah, do that research. The other thing I think is really important is don't be afraid to seek out your own clinician, to work with your own psychologist who knows about OCD because it's really frustrating. And it's not because you need to go in there and be like and start telling on your loved one. But you can go in there and talk about your own frustrations about what it's like living with OCD in the household and how you can work through your own discomfort in having to reduce accommodate. So you might be like, I'm sick of providing all this reassurance or I'm sick of doing this or I'm sick of doing that. Like how can I stop doing this? How can I coach my loved one? How can I make sure that I'm not freaking them out but also reduce this behavior and that's they're yeah. things you could easily do with a psychologist for your own self separate to your loved one you don't have to have them involved that's a lovely suggestion so let's say then that someone is happy for their loved one to be in treatment what kind of work do you reckon clinicians could be doing then how do people support their loved one similar sort of things in terms of making sure that they're reading up as much as they can and then learning ways on how they can coach their loved one during treatment, not doing it for them, not policing it. What I mean by that is not being the OCD police and be like, oh, you're compulsing again. Oh, you're doing this. Oh, you said you were going to do blah, blah. That's just going to cause fights and arguments. The best thing you could do, even as an adult support, and we've talked about this with young people, the best thing you can do as an adult supporting a loved one in treatment, an adult person in treatment is to just learn how you can modify your own behavior to affect change as opposed to getting into a power struggle with OCD because that's what OCD wants. 
because it stays in control, right? And it stays as the head of the family and it dictates what's happening. Sometimes when we're frustrated by what's happening, a lot of it can come from us as well in terms of whatever it might be that's getting triggered for us. So let's just say for argument's sake, OCD is dictating as a family how things need to be done. But you come from a family where it was quite punitive and quite controlling, like your parents might have been quite controlling and whatnot. So that's a trigger for you. So when OCD is being demanding, you start shutting down and it's easier to just appease and give in, right? So in those moments, what you can do is learn ways to regulate your own distress, notice the trigger, but do the opposite action anyway, which is what we would do in treatment. So how can you kind of work through that and support your loved one? And look, some of that might be taking that to your own therapist, (laughs) And some of it might just be recognizing that that's what needs to happen in treatment in order to reduce that accommodation that's happening. And sometimes it might just be there might not be any accommodation happening, which is rare, but it can be. And sometimes it's just learning how can I keep coaching my loved one? How can I just be a support? How can I do quote unquote normal things with my partner outside of OCD because OCD can take up so much of life that we forget to just go to brunch together or go for a walk or go watch a movie or whatever else it might be. And sure, sometimes it might be hard to do those things because OCD gets in the way, but these are goals that you can set in treatment and be like, you know what, we haven't done this for a really long time. Let's work towards that. I think also it's okay to consider couples therapy as well in addition to the individual work around OCD. And now you'd probably want to time that because if OCD was really acute, it might not be the right time for couples therapy, I would suggest. But I think it can be a really wonderful adjunct, especially if there are things to process or there are resentments or ongoing challenges or ways that OCD has impacted the nature of the relationship. I think couples counselling is a really good thing to consider. Yeah. Definitely. Or if you're talking about an adult client with their parents, family therapy might be more appropriate because family therapy is not just for families of young children, they're for families of, it's across the lifespan, families of any age and stage can access family therapy. So depending on the dynamics and the nature of who the loved one is and the system we're talking about, family therapy could also be really useful. And so to support your loved one, it might be about bringing these suggestions or being open to them, doing some research about who you could see and just being open to these extra adjunct treatment methods. I think also self-care is also really important. And look, self-care is a really interesting one because I know that, I mean, we've, I think I'm confident we've talked about this before, Celine, but the idea that you know, self-care is sometimes thought about as like bubble baths and, you know, walks (laughs) on the beach and stuff, which can be lovely, but can feel patronizing or invalidating when you're talking about, you know, really acute pathology or periods of chronic stress and things. But as a person who is supporting a loved one in treatment, you've got to take care of yourself. You've got to, because it can be a really long road and it can be exhausting and frustrating and it can feel like Groundhog Day and there will very possibly be periods when not much feels like it's happening. I have a huge amount of empathy, compassion and respect for loved ones, uh, people who are supporting a loved one in treatment because they are often outside the therapy room most of the time. They're not privy to the conversations that are going on. 
And so it takes an awful lot of patience and openness to be able to just keep on going and to respect those boundaries and along the journey. So self-care, I mean, it could take the form of what we've talked about, which is gaining knowledge so that you feel empowered and you have action that you can take so you feel less helpless. It could be accessing your own therapist. It could be talking to people about your experience, accessing support groups, talking to other people in similar positions. It could be just making sure that you yourself are doing things outside of the OCD space. So, you know, and regardless of how your partner is going, making sure that you are doing things that are strengthening you as a person. So whether that be exercise, time with friends, holidays, work, hobbies, whatever it is, just make sure that you're you're strengthening yourself along the way. Maintaining some form of routine and structure in order to help keep you balanced and anchored because it can take so much away from you, not just from you, but from your quality of life for everyone involved. And, you know, reaching out to supports is really, really important, but it's good to make sure that you're connecting with people who are actually good for your soul, as opposed to people who you start talking to and then all of a sudden it's starting to become about them and then you're left managing their emotions and yours and you're like, what the hell happened (laughs) here? (laughs) I know. And I'm not saying you can't listen to your friends as well. Absolutely. You know, it goes both ways, but but you want to be able to make sure that you're talking to trusted people who are going to be validating, who are going to hear you, who are going to hold those emotions for you as well and obviously you can do that to them in return too but you don't want to be left feeling like it was this one-sided empty kind of conversation because that can feel more frustrating and I think the other thing to um, be open to are feelings of grief and loss yes oh for sure it's a huge component and to find a way to think about that and to grieve and to process and to find ways to strengthen yourself because Significant mental health difficulties can really move you in a direction in life that you weren't expecting. And oftentimes couples or parents will have an idea about what, you know, their life is going to look like and what life will be like with their loved one. Or, And when it goes in a different direction, it can be heartbreaking and it's really important that that is acknowledged. And then you access support to help reshape your vision of your future that encompasses the reality of what things are so that it doesn't feel hopeless, so that it still feels meaningful and rewarding and exciting, even when there's despair and distress. And that can be really hard to achieve. So I think self-care in this context is really, as Celine was saying, you know, talking with really good support systems, as you were saying, Celine, accessing psychology if you need to, listening to stories like OCD stories so that you can feel justice supported while you are doing the really hard and important job of supporting your loved one in treatment. We need to last the distance because burnout when supporting a loved one is very real and incredibly heartbreaking. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so we've covered the research and the reading and the knowledge base that people have to have and we've covered accessing support. We've talked about as a clinician about the role that we have as clinicians to hold the family systems in mind, to have contact with family systems as required, to be teaching and educating as required if you can and ways of going about it if you don't. The only other thing I would say is don't be afraid to communicate. 
Communication is such a huge one, not just communicating with care team members and all the rest of it, but communicating with your loved one. Because how many times do we see family members come in and, you know, things are either brushed under the carpet or there's a lot of passive aggression going on or aggression going on. Like there's just so much miscommunication because everyone's triggered in different ways. Loved ones are being triggered, not by OCD sometimes, but by family dynamics and they're experiencing interpersonal triggers, if that makes sense. And what I mean by interpersonal triggers is by, you know, we all have our own experiences growing up and we expect people to react and respond in certain ways. And it's not always the case. Like our mind tells us a narrative of what someone might be thinking about us or how they might be responding. And we can be very reactive to that. And so it's important to also try to learn how to keep transparent communication, but be open, be respectful, be open to listening and hearing when it goes not just for people who are supporting a loved one, but also for the loved ones going through treatment to then do the same and keep those lines of communication open as much as you feel comfortable doing so as well. And I don't mean have open communication that you need to spill everything that's going on in therapy, but talk about how you guys are feeling about stuff. Like I'm having a really hard day today or OCD is really loud today or looks like you're really struggling with that. How can I support you? Do you need me to coach you through this? Do you just need to be on your own? Do we need to come back to this later? Do we need to just have a helpful distraction, go do something and then come back to it? You know, this kind of stuff as opposed to just everyone going about their own thing and just ignoring the elephant in the room. And do you know what? What you said before about don't be afraid to communicate. I know you were speaking to people in treatment and loved ones, support people, systems, But it goes too for clinicians. Don't be afraid to communicate with families. Don't be afraid to ask for permission to speak to families or to bring loved ones in or to make a phone call and introduce yourself to loved ones to include them with your client's permission. Don't be afraid to do that systems work. I remember as a junior psychologist in private practice doing some work with adults and feeling intimidated, you know, um, contacting families. And I I wish I'd done more of it as a junior psychologist because, you know, now the wisdom of time and experience, I realize how valuable it is and just what a great impact you can have when you do extend, yeah, your reach out a little. So don't be scared to do it. I think if you have your client's permission, it can be so valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. Cool. All right. So that's our little spiel on supporting a loved one in treatment. We'll have some reference points and things in our show notes for you guys to go to. Great. All right. This has been fun. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun.
and break the rules. 